Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am super excited to welcome Alyssa Cohn, who is named the top startup coach in the world by Thinkers 50 and Marshall Goldsmith Global Coaches Awards in London. Alyssa, you have been coaching startup founders to grow into world-class CEOs for nearly 20 years. You are the author of From Startup to Grown Up, which by the way, amazing title, which was published by Coding Page. You're a one-time startup CFO, strategy consultant, and current angel investor and advisor. You were named the number one global guru of startups in 2021, and you've worked with startup companies such as Venmo, Etsy, DraftKings, Wirecutter, Mack Weldon, Tory Burch. You've also coached CEOs and C-suite executives at enterprise clients such as Dell, Hitachi, Sony, IBM, Google, Microsoft, Bloomberg, the New York Times, Calvin Klein, the list goes on. You are the number one person in this field, and we have so much to talk about. But aside from everything I just named, obviously, you were named one of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 coaches at a gathering of the top coaches in the world. Inc. named you one of the top 100 leadership speakers. And you've also been named one of the top voices of thought leadership by People Home for 2021. And you know what I especially love? Just as a little side note. I love that all of these accolades are 2021. Because sometimes you get people that are like, and in 1942, I was named. I'm just saying. I'm just noting current times here. Of course, sharing your wisdom as a guest lecturer at Harvard and Cornell Universities, Henley Business School and the Naval War College. I mean, you're unbelievable. You've been the executive coach for One Way, the incubator at Cornell, New York City Tech, and you serve on the board of the Cornell Advisory. I mean, the list goes on. You've even coached public and political figures. And of course, your articles have been featured everywhere from Harvard Business Review to Inc. So welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate that beautiful, enthusiastic rendering of my bio. (laughs) Well, first of all, I mean, it's incredible, but I'm also so overjoyed to have you share your wisdom with our listeners because this is a special treat. So first and foremost, I always like to start off just to get a little bit of background on you personally, where you're from, 
those kinds of details. Yes. I grew up in a small town called Holliston, Massachusetts. Holliston's next door to Hopkinton, which is where the Boston Marathon starts. And I pretty much like almost didn't leave Holliston until I went to college. So it was a very rural community when I was there. And then I went to, I was a journalism major at Boston University. I entered the nonprofit world. After a few twists and turns, I went to business school at Cornell. And I then went to PricewaterhouseCoopers. I then joined the startup world. And then I became a coach. So it was sort of like a, a number of entry points that got me there. How did you start Alyssa Conan Associates or what prompted you to go into this coaching world? Right. Because it's like when you're a kid, you don't know, oh, coaching's a thing. You think that like you could be a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, or those kinds of things. And for me, when I was at PwC, which is a great firm, and I was like doing very well there, and I was on the so-called fast track to partner program, I just kind of woke up one day and I realized this is not my thing. Like this is not it. So I actually... I had kind of a dramatic story. I woke up on a Sunday and I thought, I hope I get the flu so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. And 18 hours later, I was rushed to the emergency room with the flu. Yes. And I was down for the count for like two weeks. And every time I thought about going back to work, my fever went back up. So I was like, okay, I get it. This is not for me. And it was like the work that I was doing, I was so focused on the clients, but the work itself was kind of not my thing. So I had to really think about what's my thing. And the music in my head was to make a difference, that the work of my hands matters. So I went off to this conference. I was a volunteer at this conference and this coach spoke to the volunteers and I was like, what's that? I want to do that. It was like violins played. That is my thing. So I really discovered coaching. When I met that coach, I just thought that's, that's me. So I'm just curious though, are you the type of person in general with your friends or your colleagues that you would naturally be spewing out advice anyway? Yes. That's a very insightful point. You know, coaching is not just spewing out advice, right? So coaching is the, the sort of interplay between asking questions to help people think about what they're saying and question their assumptions. And I was absolutely naturally oriented that way. And then also people think I have a good head on my shoulders and I have, you know, good insights about their situation. And so I would also kind of share my observations. So there's no question that I was like sort of coaching from childhood actually. And also when I was in youth group, Youth group was a very big formative experience for me. I was um, about 13 years old and my parents kind of forced me into this youth group. And I was like, no, I hate it. I hate it. But then I learned to love it. And it turned out it was what's called a peer-led youth group. So I was just a kid. I didn't know what that meant. But what it meant effectively was that I was facilitating discussion groups for the kids when I was 13 and 14 wow. and 15. So facilitation was something I also naturally gravitated towards. So when you decided, when you had this epiphany moment of just like, oh, wow, that's what I want to do, how did you know to jump in? Or what's the first step you took to make that a reality? Well, I, the first thing I did was I asked the coach who I met, Cheryl Richardson, what should I do? <laughs> and she said, you should get coach training. So I got coach training and I hired my own coach. And my coach at the time was encouraging me to coach people for free which I was doing anyway. I coach all my friends for free, like, cause that's the tax you paid to be friends with me. And then, you know, over time I was in the startup world and that kind of all imploded. And I thought, well, I'm going to become a coach now. So I was still coaching people for free. And I was still thinking about 
how do you get clients and build a business? And so the people I was coaching for free would refer me to other people and they would give me testimonials and they would ultimately turn into paying clients. But I should mention one more thing. It's a very coachy thing. So I was taking coach training. I had my own coach. On the day that I decided, okay, I'm going to become a coach now. That was like a Friday. And on the Monday, I put together a vision board of my ideal life, right? That's very coachy. But that's what I did. It actually was super helpful because there are many times in the first five years of my business, especially where I was mostly afraid and mostly super anxious and didn't know what I was doing. But I had this vision board that I always look at that made me realize that's the life that I want. You know, it's not like this feeling uncomfortable or anxious now. It's in service of the bigger picture. So having that bigger picture there, like on my wall, was actually very helpful. That's amazing. So you've been doing this for a really long time. Yeah. And I've seen people speak about you who have worked with you. And the common thread is super intimate conversations, but also tough and decisive and very clairvoyant in a way. What do you think makes your coaching so magical for the people who have had the opportunity to work with you? Well, thank you so much for saying that. That's very nice. I am driven to make a difference. I am driven to my mission, which is to light 10,000 candles. And I think that comes through in my interactions with people, especially if I'm coaching them. I care about them personally, and that always comes through. And then I want to build a relationship and I want us to be allies together. And then I don't sugarcoat what I see, which needs to be heard and which they need to sort of be aware of. And so I think the combination of those things together probably is what makes them say that. And I would just say that I think most people don't get listened enough to in the workplace, especially. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm particularly good at is listening deeply to people and what they're saying. From From a percentage perspective, how many of your clients are on the entrepreneur side versus just, you know, corporate executives that you coach? Yeah, it changes all the time, but I would say it's half and half. And would you say, with regard to sort of what you're at, like if someone's a startup founder or someone's an executive at a company, is it confidence building? Is it strategy? Like, where do you feel like most of the time your value is being added to? Like, are people coming to you because they don't know which direction to go or they feel like they have imposter syndrome and they can't get there? Like, what's the issue generally? It's about leadership. My book and the way I think about coaching is divided into three sections, managing you, managing them, and managing the business. So people come to me very often with an issue with people, employees. You know, this person isn't doing it right, or I keep giving this person feedback, or they're not leading their teams very well, or the business. We're missing our goals. We're not forecasting well. It's confusing how people kind of come together. And we talk about that, but it always comes back to them. What are they shying away from in terms of the conversations they need to have? Or where are they not, I guess I would say, clarifying for people what needs to happen? Where are they hoping that others can all work it out themselves? And so people come to me for various reasons, and we really have to work on three dimensions, and they all relate to leadership skills, which also have to do with communication, with influence, with executive presence. And then sometimes, you know, founders certainly are more than 30% more likely than their counterparts to suffer from depression and anxiety. And they certainly suffer from severe self-doubt at times and imposter syndrome at times. 
And we certainly talk about that and help them get straight with that because it's important for them to feel like they're aligned with themselves in order to then go out and communicate to the team. It's certainly hard trying to create a startup. I actually was on the board of one that lasted for five years and then just went Mm. totally under. Yeah. When you're working with people who have put their blood, sweat, and tears into something, and I'm sure you've seen this time and again, it just like for whatever reason doesn't work. How do you coach them to sort of get back on that horse? Or do you say like move on to something else? I have had a few founders who I've worked with who can't make that leap, but don't make that leap, I should say, for many reasons. The business, you know, wasn't viable, macro trends didn't go their way. Or they didn't always have the right team and they didn't know how to scale effectively and really create product market fit. Lots of reasons. I think that when that happens to any founder, step one is to step away and shake it off and take time away and like decompress and process. That's super important. And then the second is most founders have an itch inside of them and the itch inside of them is to build something. And so they often come back to what am I going to start next or what am I going to join next? And like failures are quite devastating and quite upsetting and people take it very personally, you know, because it's like a lifeblood. But founders tend to be resilient and founders tend to be full of grit. And so the truth is that very often the first startup can go wrong and the second is the one that goes right or the third is the one that goes right. That is sort of a truism in startups. And I think that when they have the right people around them to give them that perspective, they can then kind of move on to the next thing. Takes so much resilience to be able to stomach all those rounds of trying. I personally, I am not cut out for it, but talk to us a little bit about executive presence Mm -hmm. because you don't hear as much about executive presence as I feel like you should. And I think you know, I was doing a talk today earlier about in my book, I was saying how people inevitably judge a book by its cover. And if you show up and you look like you've rolled out of bed and you're not ready for that meeting, it makes an impression. So what do you advise your clients about executive presence and how they should show up? It's a very good point that you're making. It may not be fair, but that is the way it is. People do judge a book by its cover. So when I think about executive presence, the first thing is, what do you need to be effective? So The CEO needs a certain kind of executive presence to be effective. A middle manager needs maybe a different kind of executive presence to be effective. I think that women and men show up differently from the point of view of executive presence. So rather than be, oh, it shouldn't be that way, let's accept that that's the way it is. And then you want to be at your best. So when I help leaders, all leaders think about executive presence, I use the model of gravitas, communication, and appearance. So gravitas has to do with your ability to show up as an owner in a way, to have weight inside of the meeting, whether it's because of the way you're speaking, the way you're using hand motions, your height, the way you're sort of owning the room in a sense. The second is communication, making sure that you're addressing the needs of the audience. If you're speaking to a group of executives, you're going to be speaking very differently than if you're speaking to a a group of junior employees or vendors, for example. And are you able to also listen and engage at the authentic level so people kind of really feel like they're connected to you, then the third, to your point, has to do with appearance. Are you showing up that you look the part that you want to look? And so for startup founders, they don't need to wear 
jackets and ties. They don't need to be formally dressed, but they do need to distinguish themselves in some way as like this presentation or this experience mattered to me. So if I think about gravitas, communication and appearance, all of those domains are ones to look at when you're measuring your own executive presence. As far as the presentation skills of presenting, you know, to potential investors or presenting to a room of people, how do you coach people to let their points land? Because I do feel like a lot of people have like a deck and they're like, you know, reading from a deck, but I would imagine you're giving different advice than reading from a deck. Right. I say, don't read from your deck. You know, I'm not a specialist specifically in communication, but I do work on this with my various different kinds of clients. And one thing that we do is we practice. I think practice is super helpful. But also I ask everybody to step back and say, what's the goal of this meeting? Are you trying to close the deal right now? Are you trying to advance the game? Are you trying to communicate a specific message? Okay. Communicate a specific message. Fine. What do you want that message to be? How do you want to make sure that you are articulating that message? What is the story you are telling? And once people think about it from the point of view of my goal is to do X, I'm trying to communicate a specific message, and the story arc is going to look like this inside of doing that, honestly, that changes the deck, but that also changes the way they show up in the room. Well said. So your book, yes, from Startup to Grown Up. What made you write this now? I've been thinking about writing it for years because I go into situations and I'll say, you know, so how often do you meet with, with your leadership team? And they say, what's a leadership team? Or I'll say, when you have all hands, do you tell people these kinds of things in the all hands? And they say, you know, we're pretty inconsistent with having all hands or we don't have all hands or something like that. Or this happens a lot there are employees who aren't doing what you want them to do. And I'll say, well, did you hire them to do that thing? And they're like, well, I kind of hired them because they worked at LinkedIn, or I kind of hired them because they worked at Google, which is understandable. But I would see this over and over. And I thought, I wish I had a book to hand them to say, here's a way to prevent avoidable errors. And I didn't feel there was a book like that. So I decided I'm going to write that book. And I was also inspired, I will say, Ben Horowitz's book, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, is a lot of tell it like it is. And all of my clients and the founders I talk to on my podcast from Startup to Grown Up, they all reference Ben Horowitz. You know, he's very, it's like he was there in the trenches. And I kind of wanted to write a book that was a little less just about Ben Horowitz and his experiences and about sort of a global set of experiences that I've had the privilege of being a part of as a coach for 20 years. What would you say is the most surprising thing you learned writing your book? Well, I certainly learned what it takes to write a book, (laughs) right? Which, you know, like it was not a really happy surprise, like the sort of the discipline of doing it. But I guess I would say I had the privilege and the delight of interviewing 14 founders for my book. I interviewed Alexi Robichaud of BetterUp. I interviewed John Stein of Betterment. I interviewed Ali Webb of Drybar, et cetera. And what was amazing to me was two things. No one had ever asked them these questions about what it was like to grow personally as they grew as a leader and what their inside experience was like. And it was very validating to hear what they all said. 
you know, the only client that I interviewed was Dennis Crowley. So I kind of, you know, I knew Dennis very well and I knew what some of his struggles and what he had gone through by virtue of coaching him, but nobody else had I coached. And it was really, I would say it was validating and also a little bit surprising to hear them describe the same experience over and over again. I'm curious, what made you interview people that you didn't coach? Because I wanted to expand the pool of my own knowledge, right? So I kind of already knew the people who I coached. I wanted to get some new people in the book and in my own kind of mind's eye. So I'd have those experiences also, although there's one I should correct that. I did also interview Brian Berger from Mack Weldon. And I learned some things from Brian, you know, through our interview, which I hadn't known. So I just think it's very helpful to expose yourself to different people. And then you expose yourself to different insights. Yeah, it's literally why I do this podcast. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. I actually, I saw that you launched your podcast today. Yeah, today, just today. It's very exciting. I'm so honored that you made time for me tonight. That's very <laughs> exciting. So yes. it's great companion for the book. Is that why you did it? Just to continue the conversations. To continue the conversations, exactly. So I interviewed these founders. It was so fantastic to interview these founders. And P.S., I only I had an hour with each of them or maybe 30 minutes for some of them. But I could only put in the book a tiny transcript where we talked about. And also, I just felt like, wow, this was so invigorating. And I learned a lot. If only I could keep interviewing founders. Wait, I could keep interviewing founders. And- <laughs> You know, and I just thought I'm going to do that. So I did. I launched the podcast today, and I'm I'm talking to founders about their journeys from startup to grown up. I'll also be speaking with. I've only spoken with one author. I was speaking with authors, and I'll also be speaking with other people who have insight into the journey of growth for a founder. What do you think it takes to be a successful founder today? Mm, so many things. Yeah, I, I mean, we talked about grit and perseverance and resilience. Another is sort of aligned with that, it just takes the ability to manage your own psychology, right? So you start in this thing and you're kind of against all odds. You figure out a few problems, then you get more and more problems. And as you get bigger and more successful, you get actually bigger and hairier, more difficult problems. (laughs) And so you're constantly confronting issues and problems and concerns and I think that you've got to manage your own psychology as that happens. You know, I just, my first podcast, I spoke to Matt Blumberg and Matt said something that I've heard from many founders, which is, I knew that there'd be ups and downs, but I didn't realize they would happen within five minutes of each other or right on top of each other at the same time. And that is accurate. So it's kind of figuring that out and recognizing you're in this for the long run, taking care of yourself, like literally nutrition and sleep and the right fitness program. And then as the founder, your job is not to know everything. Your job is to build a team and create the environment, people around you, you hire great people and they can around you, figure out where we're going so they can lay the tracks alongside you as you move down the path. Going back to your own coaching business, is there a certain type of person that you look for that you think, okay, I'm going to be effective for this type of person? Like I would imagine you screen people just as much as they're screening you. Yeah, definitely. What I like to do is I'd like to do a little piece of coaching. 
inside of uh, any, my first one or two meetings with somebody for two reasons. One is that what I think is that people want to know what it's like to do coaching with Alyssa. And there's no way to do that except to do a little piece of coaching with Alyssa. Then they'll know. So I like to do that. I like to think about how I can add value immediately to someone and also they can get a sense of my style. And then also I can get a sense of them and I can figure out, are they going to be open? Are they going to be interested in this discussion and dialogue? Are they going to be able to put things into place and make connections quickly? Those are the kinds of people who I love to coach. Makes perfect sense. So you're also an angel investor. Yes. So you're, I guess, vetting startups in your coaching business and then probably being like, oh, that's that actually looks like a good one to invest into. Or how are you deciding where to invest? It's still a work in process for me. Actually, I have my own peer coach where we coach each other. And I coach him on building his business and building his brand, so to speak. And he coaches me on helping me think about angel investing and sourcing deals, but also evaluating deals. So I think I've gotten much more sophisticated over the past few years. But part of it is a sense of recognizing the trend that may be going on in that direction. You know, like maybe you've noticed that there's a trend in NFTs right now. I've noticed that. And then thinking, you know, sort of trying to read the landscape of whether or not that trend is going to last. And then looking at the team and thinking, is this the team that's going to be able to get it there? And then depending on when you enter, you have enough of a track record or not. And so it's sort of evaluating all those things. I don't have um, a specific domain that I focus on. I really focus on the various ways I source deals and learning about that industry and learning what it takes to be successful in that industry. Do you think that you coach women differently than men? Mm, No. I try to adapt to every person I deal with. And I think that there's so many nuances inside of people. So it's not just gender. It's sort of, are they the kind of person who wants to hear feedback straight up or do they want some softball? Can they hear a bunch of things at once or is something that needs to kind of get dripped into them? Also people, they have different like personal styles and communication styles. And then there has to do with their own needs. So in the book, I talk a lot about what's your natural swing as a leader. Some leaders naturally want to make all the decisions and they need to learn to step back. Some leaders don't make any decisions and they need to kind of lean in when it's important. Some leaders have a communication style, which is keeping everything to themselves so no one knows what's going on, (laughs) right? Which is like not so good. They have to learn to speak up and communicate and make sure everyone else is communicating. But some leaders communicate every thought that pops in their head. Well, they need to learn to be more modulated in their styles. So that's what I look at um, when I'm coaching someone, both their own makeup and then also what are the lessons they need to take away with them. That makes perfect sense. What does it mean to build social capital? Social capital is the grease that smooths out the ability to work together. And when you build social capital with people, it means that you build up reputation and also a track record with that person so that they trust you. They want to do the thing for you that you want them to do. And specifically that you can quickly get something done with them because they assume that you know what you're talking about and that you have good intent. So the way you build up social capital 
is to get to know people and figure out what their goals are to help them and do favors for them. Also to have rapport, like to care about them as a person, and then to work together over and over again, hopefully, and to showcase yourself as somebody who is is good to work with. Those are some of the ways to build social capital. You mentioned before that, you know, when you started coaching, you were coaching people for free. And now you mentioned doing favors. And I think there is a slippery slope between obviously doing all these things for free and then hoping that it comes back in spades as far as real business or building social capital. How do you toe the line between putting yourself out there to get that experience, to build that social capital versus being taken advantage of because you're giving out all these things for free? Yeah. Well, I think that giving away value tends to just multiply your value. Like in general, I have that perspective. When I was a brand new coach, I didn't have a track record. So I got a lot out of that exchange, if you will. Mm -hmm. I coached them for free. And then suddenly I had a track record. I had experience. Also, the contract we created was, if this works for you, I'm going to look for a testimonial from you. And I would appreciate you sharing this with your friends. And so those kinds of things were part of the so-called contract that we had. And that was very worthwhile for me in those days. That would no longer work for me now. You know, as I'm promoting my book, part of what I want to do as my mission, which is to light 10,000 candles and to really make a difference for people, is that I want to share the insights of this book. So also as a paid speaker, eh, sometimes be more flexible in what I will do and how much I will do it for by virtue of knowing that it's a moment for me to be generous because I want to be sharing the insights from my book. But I just want to say that like, it is an important question because speakers in particular, especially during COVID, have been asked to reduce their fees or speak for free. I am not primarily a speaker. I'm a coach. I'm a facilitator, a coach. I do lecturing. I do some speaking. But when you do something for a living, it's important to establish both that you have a reputation and a brand and to not accept doing it for free because they think that, that they're doing you a favor by giving you exposure. That's a great point. I have a lot of friends as well who are paid speakers, you know, and they always throw in the, oh, it's for a women's group. Yes. That's a big one. Um, and it's like, these are people's livelihoods. Like you can't expect people to do it for free, even if it's COVID. And right. by the way, Zoom speaking is no different than in real life speaking. It's the same speech. So right. exactly. I totally feel their frustration. Going back to your book now, starting at what age should someone read this book? Do you think? Oh, they should start as a teenager. I've met incredible teenagers with entrepreneurial spirit who need to think immediately about how to build a business. I know that uh, one of my clients, he came to me as he graduated from college because he had spent his entire four years of college building a business. So you're never too young to be an entrepreneur. But I would also say this. I think that we have this stereotype that entrepreneurs are like in their 20s and wearing hoodies. Actually, the average age in this country of entrepreneurship is age 43. And there's a lot of people in their later 40s and 50s, even 60s, who are starting businesses for the first time by virtue of realizing I've done corporate America. Now it's time for a startup. So I think that you can be a very effective 
We've seen a startup founder and startup leader at age 22 and also at age 62. So many millions of women, I think it's more than 53 million women have left the workforce globally because of COVID. And I would imagine many of them or some of them are having a tough time getting back in, which is always, you know, a true impetus for like, okay, let me do something on my own. If you've been out of the workforce for a while and you have no track record for building something, what do you think is the first step in sort of building your social capital, your credibility to be able to actually have people put trust in you as a startup founder? So actually, it's back to what we talked about before, back to this notion of like transactions, right? Volunteering is very powerful if you're volunteering in the right arena. So number one, go figure out where the startup community is in your community and go be a leader inside of that startup community. Go to the meetings, volunteer to organize things, volunteer to lead things. And that is very powerful and gets you to be well-known. I spoke to Zvi Band, uh, who is the founder of Contactually, which got sold to Compass. And he became an entrepreneur, not because he grew up as an entrepreneur. It was because when he was in D.C., he was like, yeah, kind of fiddling around with some ideas. And he organized the whole D.C. community. He started just convening meetups and convening different kinds of groups of different people. No one asked him to. It was totally his own volition. And through that, he began to build his sort of notoriety as a startup person. And he met his co-founder inside of that. So anyone can do that. The second thing is go find startup founders and go talk to them and go find out what it takes and what they needed to start. Plenty of people who I've spoken to have bootstrapped businesses. Also, sometimes I think that we have this idea that maybe women don't want to build a big business. I don't personally want to like perpetuate that stereotype, but I do want everyone to know, women and men, that you don't have to build a massive Google business and go public and all that. You can build a lifestyle business that's going to make you happy, that's going to help you, you know, sort of bring income in and help you build something that's meaningful to you. So don't assume, oh, I could never build Google myself. So I think there's a few different ways to enter it. But, you know, like everything, it's one foot in front of the other. And it takes that resilience and that grit and knowing that people will agree to meet with you and then they'll back out. Knowing that you'll have this discussion at coffee and they will be discouraging. We've been discouraged, right? And so you need to kind of overcome that and put one foot in front of the other in service of the bigger picture. So the last thing I want to say is vision boards. Do a vision board. I think that's actually really helpful. <laughs> it is very helpful. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about company boards. Yeah. Is it important for executives, for also founders to be part of other boards to show that they have presence in other places? Um, not necessarily. Founders love mentoring other founders. And founders love being in groups and CEO groups and whatnot with other founders. All of that is quite sufficient to, you know, have your place at the table and also to figure out what else is going on around there. Also, many founders, when they get a little bit of income, you know, maybe their startup starts to succeed, they get a little bit of money and they become angel investors. So whether on the board or not, they have skin in the game. And those are perfectly great ways to 
build your kind of social capital inside of the startup world. And then being on a board is a possibility. Being on a board can at times be time consuming. And if you're building your startup, you might not want to be involved in all that time. That's a really good point. What's a typical day like for you, Alyssa? Uh, it's definitely very varied. I start every morning with some version of breathing or meditation and writing in my journal. And I start every morning with some form of fitness, whether it's my kettlebells, my kettlebell workout, which I work out with a strength coach or running. That's super important to me. And then it's different. Tomorrow I have an offsite with one of my clients. Of course, I started my podcast recently. So I've been, you know, interviewing founders and, and others for my podcast. Um, I'll work with my clients either, you know, on video these days or in person. And, you know, I do a lot of writing. As you mentioned, I write for HBR and for Inc. and for Forbes. And so I do that as well. And I try to post on LinkedIn pretty regularly. So no one has ever accused me of being lazy when it comes to work. <laughs> what are you most proud of in your career so far? Two things come to mind. I'm proud that I took the leap to build my business and stuck with it for all the ups and downs of 20 years. And I'm proud through that, that I got to a lot of accomplishments that, you know, you were so kind to mention in your introduction. And I'm very proud of this book because it was being birthed inside of me for a long time. And there were times where I was in despair that I wasn't going to be able to fulfill this real dream of mine to write this book. And I'm extremely proud that it's coming out. Amazing. It's so needed because I think a lot of people have great ideas, but they just don't know where to begin. And if they begin, they don't know where to go from there. Yes, that's really true. And it's a long journey. It's not like two seconds. And I think, you know, you hear so many overnight successes, which are never overnight successes, basically. Right. For sure. Do you have a life mantra? <laughs> if I have a life mantra, it is to make a difference. That the work of my hands matters. I love that. What's your life mantra? Oh, my life mantra. You know, it's so funny. I didn't expect you to turn that question back around on me. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's a life mantra as much as it is like I am a big believer in just setting intentions every day versus like a big planner. Like I never had a five-year plan. I never had a vision board. Now I probably would go and do one. Um, but I just think like small digestible bites that's how I kind of view my life and everything that I do. I mean, I also believe in mentorship and I try to pay forward everything that I've learned too. So I guess to help other people not make silly mistakes in the same way that you were saying that. So, but yeah, I think probably my demographic is more college age and right out of school. People like learning how work works in a way that you never really learn in school. So that's kind of the area that I love. Yeah. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? Is there another book inside of you? What do you think is coming next? I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about that. This book was the culmination of a lot of things. And after my book launches, and I'm going to Web Summit in Lisbon to speak there about my book, and then I'm coming back, I have a week off already booked in my calendar to sort of like recharge and decompress and think about the next chapters for me. And so I think the way I want to leave my mark, it does come down to make a difference and lighting 10,000 candles. But what's next for me in the vehicle in which I do that, I am enjoying not quite knowing right now. I love that. 
Yeah. That's great. You're going to experience the journey as you go. Amazing. Yeah. Well, Alyssa, this book is going to be phenomenal. What's the actual launch day? It launches in the U.S. on October 26th, but it's already out in the U.K. and on Kindle. Amazing. Well, this was wonderful. You're full of amazing advice, and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I love being with you today. Oh, you're so sweet. I love being with you too. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Eliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Eliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to ElisaLicht.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.